The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifus Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Buggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello there. So, interesting subject today. One of my favorite subjects. This is a subject with no cheap fixes, so it be interesting. <laughs> never, never are. So, today's guest found himself studying acoustics after advanced apprenticeship in engineering, which led him to the British Standards Institution as a lead auditor for ISO 9001 and 19011, which I'm not familiar with, so you're going to have to explain that one later on. Followed up by a bachelor's degree in accounting and business management. Between his academics and practitioner skills, he's designed and built and commissioned and accredited sound acoustic test laboratories and now is involved in writing technical documents that will shape the future of air tightness testing, which we'll also talk to you about that because he just went through one of those for a project. Welcome to the show, Barry Kobe. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure being here with you guys. You make my job sound both incredibly exciting and incredibly <laughs> technical and boring at the same time. But <laughs> for all of the boring standard stuff, there's there's a bunch of really exciting things that we do. So I feel like yeah. it levels itself out. So Barry, you're involved with a number of associations, including the Air Tightness Testing and Measurement Association, the UK, Sound Insulation Testing and Measurement Association, Building Compliance Testers Association, Building Performance Hub, all of these. How did you find yourself <laughs> involved in all of yeah. them. Yeah, it's a funny story. I left school. I was told after I had my, what you guys would call high school, I was told I wasn't smart enough to carry on in education and I should go and find my way in the in the world of work. And I did just that. I ended an apprenticeship in engineering and loved every second of it. It was hands-on, but it was technical. I always thought I fared okay in school. I completed my apprenticeship yeah. in, it was actually closer to manufacturing than it was engineering. The company there came to my end of my apprenticeship and I wanted to be a field engineer. The field engineers at the company were traveling the world and it was just just incredible. I wanted to do that. Unfortunately, they didn't have a position for me and it didn't work out. So I found a job with a company called BM Trada, the British Maritime Timber Research and Development Association, to be a field engineer in this new thing that had just come out called air tightness testing. It just dropped in the building regulations here where we had to test a small sample of new homes on building sites. And I absolutely loved it. Best job I've ever had. I always say to people, it's the best. It's the best job that you could do. You're driving around in your car or a van. You go and do a few hours work and you come home and you send an Excel spreadsheet to somebody in the office and they deal with it. That was my job for a (laughs) few years. But I was actually, I didn't realize it. I made an incredible career move because regulations had just changed and air tightness testing just blew up from under my feet, which was great. So we ended up with a big team of air leakage testers and I think a good work ethic and being based in the right place at the right time meant the department blew up and we I ended up being the head of energy services at that department and I was still very young. I must have been 21, 22 years old and we had a team of eight people, nine people at the time. 
And we then needed to, to do some more stuff. So we decided acoustics was the next natural step for us. And I went to study acoustics. I did a diploma in acoustics while I was working. At the same time, we were building a sound insulation suite at the facilities there. And it was all systems go. So that was kind of how I got into acoustics. Air tightness testing was my job. And, and we continued keeping a hand in that and testing some incredible buildings. Before you know it, that had come to an end and I'd left and joined another incredible company called Sight Sound. They gave me a great opportunity to develop my acoustic consultancies. But the ATMA stuff, the Air Tightness Testing and Measurement Association had always been bumbling along in the background, creating this idea. And I eventually got a call from a guy called Rob Coxon, uh, formerly of Stroma. And he said, Barry, we need you to come back into the fold. We need you to join ATMA and, and get this thing off the ground and run a business that no one has ever done before. There's, it doesn't exist in the UK. There's no model for it. There's no precedent. There's no money. There's very, very little money. But if, if it all goes wrong, I'll bankroll you out of my personal money. And I didn't tell my, well, my now wife that that was the case. I just said, hey, listen, I've got this amazing opportunity. I'm going to give up my acoustics career and I'm going to start this new business. And she was like, okay, yeah, great. But yeah, it's only, <laughs> only recently. The money part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was quite a dangerous, uh, dangerous jump. But, but we did it. I sat in my bedroom on my own laptop with my own mobile phone. And some people still call me to this day on my personal mobile phone. And we had nothing. And I convinced people of the dream, hey, this is what we could do if we all got together, if we become a member, if we become this thing. And if you see my vision, just pay into it, become part of what we're doing. And it worked. And within a year, something like 85, 86% of all of the air tightness testing that happened in the UK came through this scheme that I was running. And we started making money through a system that we have called Lodgement, which we should discuss definitely in a bit. Yeah, We started making a ton of money. So it just worked. And then because of my natural acoustics background, we stepped into acoustics so that we created the Sound Insulation Testing and Measurement Association. And that's a whole other story about how that came along. And from that, we decided we needed to invest that money. We made money as a not-for-profit organization. We needed to spend some money or give the money back. And mm. the member said, hey, don't give us it back. Go and do something awesome. And that's how we ended up with the Building Performance Hub, which wow, is a 10,000 square feet warehouse with an entire house, a sound insulation suite, a ventilation suite, a stage, a plenum, a kitchen. It's the place we're sitting on right now. So I appreciate that's not to 60. That's everything in one hit. But it's this incredible story of taking chances and really pushing the industry that coupled with some luck and coupled with some good fortune that got me to be the head of this organization that's doing awesome things and now operating in Dubai, operating in Australia, and now soon to be operating in the USA, which is, I guess, how we came to bump into you guys. So that's really interesting. So a couple of things that I want for our international viewers. You notice that Barry said he was, uh, school were unimpressed with him and asked him to go out to the workplace. So he became an apprentice engineer. That tells you how low and the social order engineers are in the UK, right? <laughs> they start yeah. out with school failures like me and Barry. <laughs> and uh, that's Absolutely. changed in the last certain 30, 40, 30, 20 years, I think. But it still tells you something where in society's pecking order, engineers live, right? They sort of live mid to low and they should be living at a higher level. But that's another story. That's another chat show. <laughs> yeah. All right? But... The other thing that's interesting is you should never confuse genius with good luck, right? So you've obviously done well, but I've got to say your timing is 
sweet, right? The changes in building regulations or building code in the UK, right? The attention now being given to facade performance and envelope performance. The recent changes in regulation O, which is building code O in the UK for acoustics and how that ties in with facade performance of life safety. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that have really come together to actually make your moment quite good, I would say. I mean, yeah, we see in business coming out from the changes in building regulations, right? We do in a roundabout way. For me, it's important that the business that's created is done by our members. Right. So we are a trade association that provides opportunities to our members. So it's my job to identify them and make sure that we can give the tools, the training, the certification if required to make sure these guys and girls can go out and do the work. So I've always said you make your own luck. I've got lucky with timing, but I've also got lucky because I've done the hours. You know, when I've been at previous companies, instead of just going home after doing some testing, I've gone back to the office and done an eight-hour shift to make sure that that we keep the, the ship afloat, as it were. So yeah, there's definitely luck. There's definitely good fortune. But I would say to people, and touching back on your point there about leaving school and where engineers sit, you make your own luck. If you work hard, it doesn't matter about qualifications. It really doesn't. If you leave school and you have the right work ethic, you will make it to the top, I promise you. If you accept mediocre, you will stay mediocre. If you do that extra hour, if you push that extra job, if you have the ambition, that luck will come back on you, I promise. And I would say that. I've been a big fan of the apprenticeship system. We actually took on an apprentice because of my own experience here and we did digital marketing and I would happily take on 10 more apprentices if they could be funded. And I think that's a problem with the government here. I think apprenticeships should be way higher funded so that employers like me could use our experience and teach it to those people who don't fit the traditional system of Mm. high school, college, university and and the like. Yeah, I'm a big fan of apprenticeship systems. But what you're describing there is a very UK-centric experience. In the UK, you can be thrown out of school like I was with no qualifications and there are routes to go back after making mistakes and have a professional career. Unfortunately, in North America, the class system here is based on credentials and it's really hard to do that. So that's yeah, I, my experience having lived there. I would agree with that. We had the number of UK-based individuals working for us and their breadth of knowledge, just from the technical to the practical side, yeah. that band that they operate in was much wider than other individuals. Here in North America, if you're on the trade side, that's you're on the trade side. And if you're on the engineering side, well, you're doing engineering, but never the two shall meet. I think in many ways, actually, I am probably one of the exceptions to that rule because I started out in the trades before I got into engineering. But, you know, Adam, we've talked about this before that, you know, when we were looking at hiring engineers, anybody that had field experience was far more valuable than the person that had none. I mean, they just saw the world from a different set of lenses. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. And I'm the exact type of person that would look at a CV and see a degree and a master's in a certain subject. And I would see somebody with five years experience in the field of that subject. And I would take the person with five years experience all day long. Experience is everything. And if it's five years experience of hard work, you're going to get such a more rounded, experienced person that can just drop into the role. I'll say it until I'm, I'm blue in the face. I'm such a fan of that kind of hard work and apprenticeship way, go out, earn money. And what we're seeing in the UK now is the trades are earning unbelievable amounts of money. My own brother came out with a degree in, from university with criminology, 
couldn't get a job. I know many people that have come out with arts degrees, with journalism, struggling to get a job. Yeah. I know electricians that I left school at the same time, they're earning three times as much as I am. And they're working yeah. half the amount because electricians and carpenters are just in such high demand right now. It makes me sit and look back and go, hey, maybe I should do electrician. Maybe I, <laughs> I could earn yeah. so much money. And you find the people that have left university are struggling to get graduate yeah. jobs in the city. And maybe 20 years time, those graduates are going to earn more money. They'll work their way up the food chain in London, in Houston, in New York, in mm. LA. Uh, they will work their way up the food chain. But those engineers are just needed in the world right now. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before on the show that we know collectively more multi-millionaire tradespeople than we do physicians, lawyers. Yeah, you, you never see an engineer on a bike. Huh? And if you do, it's what probably... What you do, it's broken. a fast bike and a nice bike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It does 300 kilometers an hour. Like, yeah, yeah. And we, There's a guy, colleague, an industry colleague, he's retired now, but he would drive his motorcycle down to the... I know we're talking about possibly pedal bikes, but he had a high, high-performance motorcycle. Mm-hmm. Weather permitting, that's how we moved around the country. Calgary to, to Houston, you would get on that thing and go. But nice bikes. I mean, they're engineering machines, and for an engineer, there's nothing quite like it. Yeah, our profession yeah. does a terrible job of cheerleading and encouraging people to come in. You know, we need the uh, Elon Musk-type personalities to cheerlead people into our business, and we don't have that at the moment. Like me, you got to literally trip up and fall into this business, right? Well, this is something we're trying to trying to do here at the Building Performance Hub. We have this incredible facility and what we're trying to do is to reach out to as many of the schools and universities around us and say, hey, all of those 15, 16-year-olds, come down and let me have three hours mm. with a classroom and let me show you why construction is the best industry in the world. And I truly mean that. You go onto any building site and you meet the breadth and depth of people and they all have their stories and you'll never meet the funniest, nicest people in the world on construction sites. And I truly believe if people can see past the mud and the hard hats and the high vises and the porta potties, then you'll see that actually beneath that, there's a layer of engineers and surveyors. And you think of even the most simplest of job, trying to get concrete up a 25-story building so that you can pour a concrete floor. That doesn't happen without some incredible teams and some incredible engineering. <laughs> even if it's just the vehicles, you know, the vehicles that get driven have to be driven in a certain way. The pumps have to be maintained. The electricity yeah. has to come from somewhere. Yeah. There's so many roles that aren't the boots on the ground kind of digging holes that people could drop into. Yeah, why I laughed at that statement is because I was involved on a code committee and we were talking about the use of polymer plastics, like I said, plastics on uh, multi-story high-rise buildings. And we're talking about radiant heating and cooling systems. And what happens in the event that you're on the 20th floor and you have a failure and a connection or a pipes because somebody was pouring concrete, put their shovel through the pipe. And there was a, an individual that was on the committee who said that regardless of the manufacturer's approved repair fittings, that the pipe had to get removed out of that circuit. And I looked at the guy and I said, you're on the 26th floor. There's probably three layers of rebar. That pipe is probably sandwiched between two of them that's at the bottom. You've got probably eight or nine construction or concrete trucks out on the street, right? The general contractors had to make arrangements to shut the traffic down for 
he's probably worked on that for probably six months on the schedule. <laughs> and you're telling us that they're going to stop the pour to pull up two layers of rebar and replace that loop? Yeah. You've never been on a construction site before, ever. Uh, if you fell in <laughs> and they were pouring, they're going to pour over you and put you in. No, totally. <laughs> you get on the job site and you're going to stop the pour, you'd find yourself in with cement boots. Like you're just, it ain't going to happen. Yeah. And that's the difference between, you know, somebody that's got some practical skills and somebody that just doesn't understand the real world. And, and so, yeah, yeah. That's, that's huge, the experience part of it. Let's talk about ATMA because I've been fortunate. I've worked in 21 countries and the cultural differences between them fascinate me. So ATMA is a UK origin, right? So it's very UK centric. Yeah. And it's addressing um, facade and envelope performance, which is important and that's important everywhere. But I find sometimes it's hard to export UK standards and institutions and trade bodies to other parts of the world, particularly North America. So you're well-established in the UK, right, and UK-influenced areas of the world. How are you doing breaking into the US? Because you said you were trying to break into the US. Yeah, what we've done in the UK is build up such a reputation that we've become the blueprint. We've become the desired outcome. So in the new Part L, which is part of our building regulation, part of our building code that's just been released, as of June, we require 100% of buildings to be airtightness tested. So that in multifamily homes, that's every single compartment, every single piece of building that somebody can own has to be individually tested. And what that's done for us is create the blueprint. Other countries, European, Australian, Asian, American, Canadian, are all looking at us and going, that's the end goal. How did they get there? And what happens is guys like Elliot, guys like Sean Maxwell, who's doing awesome stuff in Australia, have come to us and gone, how have you done it? We're struggling to get it even in local codes and, and to get one in 200 plots tested. And you're out there testing everything. And we said, here is how we did it. And a big part of that is actually data. Data, I, I have this term, data is the new gold. Stole that from somebody, whoever needs credit for that. Adam, I'll give them credit for that. Probably stole it from Adam. Probably stole <laughs> That's it from Adam. <laughs> <laughs> so he data is the new gold. Times. One of the things we did, and I can't take credit for inventing lodgement, uh, it's probably again, down to this guy, Rob Coxon, who deserves a lot of credit, but he villainized himself in the industry so that Atma would rise. And I always give him credit where credit's due. He, that's a, again, a whole other story, but he came up with this idea that if we could record each test into a database and charge people per test, we would be able to fairly charge the industry to pay, effectively pay my salary as Atma. So we have this system that we call Lodgement and we made it mandatory for all Atma members. And we it's so cheap. It's £1.75, which is about $2.50, give or take, a bit less. Per uh, test. We ch- Per individual plot, not per test. That's also important. So if a test fails and it has to be retested, we don't charge them again because actually the data from the failed tests is way more important to us than the data from the past mm-hmm. test. The data from the past test is simply a process whereby you submit your data. And what we do is, before we did barely any, but now we're doing thousands of checks on that piece of data We're checking numbers that have been previously lodged. We're checking calibration variables. We're making sure that that test is a genuine test. And if it doesn't, it passes all our tests. We give you a one-page certificate. So back in my first year of Atma, we got this thing up and running. I went round to pretty much all of the local authority building controls. That's the kind of building inspectors for the American guys all have their own areas. 
I went around to every single one of them and showed them, hey, currently you're receiving 30, 40 page reports from each tester for each group of tests. They all look different. They have numbers in different places. If I could give you a system where every test was unique, or every certificate was the same, but every test was unique, and all you had to do was trust me that if you see an Atma logo on a certificate, that it's okay, that in order to get that certificate, Atma has checked their insurance, their credentials, their training, the validity of the test, and a bunch of other stuff. You just have to take a one-page certificate, and every single one of them agreed, great, that's exactly what we want. And that's what happened. And then it was tough to get it started. There's a, a funny story that I tell people all the time, which is in the early days, none of the companies trusted each other. We had a bunch of members and nobody trusted each other. We launched the lodgement system and nobody was really lodging anything. And I had a phone call with one company saying, and I said to them, why aren't you lodging your test? It's now mandatory. This is a thing. Like, And bearing in mind, we'd run out of money by this point. This was my salary I'm begging for. I said, why aren't you lodging your tests? And they go, well, because other companies aren't lodging their tests. And I said, yeah, they are. I said, I've got here 2,000 tests they've already lodged. I've got a huge amount of tests. You're like the only company in the scheme not lodging. And they go, oh, no, I'm so sorry. I'm so embarrassed. So they then go and lodge all their tests, which gave me the ammunition to go back to company A and say, hey, why aren't you lodging any of your tests? This company are. And I could show them a very quick, you know, flash the screen and say, look, there's thousands of them. And like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And eventually, we, <laughs> by hook or by crook, I got this thing going. I got the momentum and it's never stopped since. And what we've been able to do is gather a body of evidence. So we have 1.1 million tests in our system at the moment. That's 1.1 wow. million unique blower door tests. And not just that, when we set up lodgement, I identified that if we just collect the data from air tightness testing, that's fine. That's easy. We should collect a little bit more. If we collect, say, the data for what ventilation systems installed or what the interior ceiling status was like, whether they have a mastic seal or not. And we take the sizes of things and the volumes of things and whether it's a cold roof or what type of condition space exists, then we could have a lot more data. And it worked. We now have this 1.1 million lodgements. We're about to get our 1 millionth, it should happen next month, our 1 millionth unique test through the door. So that's a test that's unique that's passed. So when I say 1.1 million, that includes the failures. So we're yeah. about to get our million unique tests through the door. And for that, we're going to give away a full blower door kit to the person or the company that gets that unique 1 million. They won't know what number that is. They'll just get a phone call asking to come down for a photo opportunity and, and we're going to give them the kits. But back to my original story, we became the blueprint because we have this data, because we were then able to use this data to lobby the government and say, hey, it's working. We're doing really well. But hey, if you make this change, we could do even better. Or these are the things that are working and these are the things that are not working. And we had a good government behind us who want to do the energy efficiency improvements have pushed and pushed. So every four or five years, they make an increase to the point now we're 100% testing. And that's that's incredible. 86% of all of the tests come through our system. About 12, 13% come through another scheme that exists in the UK, who shall remain nameless. Okay, so... <laughs> Well, we won't be giving them free advert. So going right back to the America, we became the blueprint. So the guys in America say, hey, we need to do more blower door testing. How on earth has this British guy managed to do it in Britain and no one else has done it in the world? And they came to me and asked me that question. And it just takes off. We start the conversation. We explain what we do and how we do it. And this is our model. And they say, we need this. We need this. And it actually happened in Australia first with Sean Maxwell, who's an American guy who used to work yeah. in New York. I think it's Stephen Winter. He used mm. to work for, for Stephen Winter. So 
he moved to Australia to be with his now wife. And he said, hey, I want to kickstart the blower door industry. How have you done it? And that's how we got talking. And we created Atma Australia after a few years. And the exact same thing, the exact story is happening right now with, with Elliot, with the guys down at Zero Six in Texas. A bunch of guys in the US have got together and said, we need this. Let's make this happen. Let's get Atma into the US. We'll push the system for you because it's such a big country, so many different states. We'll push the system if you let us borrow the name effectively, like a franchise model. We'll push your name. You come and help us. You let us use Lodgement. You come and teach us how to do the training and give us a copy and paste of the scheme rules and regulations that you have, and we'll help you. You know, like Subway sandwiches. They could start from scratch, but we've paid half a million pound in development for our Lodgement system, and it works with the softwares that already work with uh, air tightness testers, that with the tech types, the fantastics. They already have these softwares in their hand. So why reinvent the wheel when we can effectively give them the wheel? In exchange, we're getting the reputational part of that back. You know, people know who Atma are in, in the US. And that still to this day blows my mind that this little group that I joined when I was maybe 18 years old as a trade association that used to meet with a few of us in a room has now developed into this global business where we're trying to do our bit. Another thing I'd chuck in there is you'll definitely be interested in this, Adam, is that to some extent we've been too successful, which is a very bold thing to say. I can oh, appreciate it. Right? <laughs> but we've actually overtaken and we've caused problems in the industry, particularly with ventilation. So yeah. because homes have gone from being very leaky to very airtight in the UK in a very yeah. short space of time, what's happened is the ventilation industry never quite caught up and the ventilation regulations mm never quite caught up and we've actually not made homes too tight because there's no such thing as a home being too airtight, only a home that's not ventilated in accordance of its airtightness. It's super important that there's no such thing as a home that's too airtight, but the ventilation industry and the ventilation regulation never changed quick enough for the reduction in airtightness. I think it just caught a lot of people off guard. So we're very conscious about that. So yeah, that's my monologue about how Atma of gone from nothing and it was all due to us becoming the ideal model for other people the edifice complex will continue in just a moment can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute now you can with echo it's simple just type what you're looking for and press enter echo knows your building Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding, plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now, back to the show. Talk about the conflict that you must have seen in the beginning with builders, for example. I mean, the builders had their culture. They were building as per their standard offering, and all of a sudden... The big hammer it's, comes down and says, you guys are not building the way that we need you to build yeah, and you're going to be I, tested on it. I was boots on the ground when the new regulations kicked in and we were looking at 10 meters cubed per hour per meter squared. I don't know what that is in, in feet or CFM 75. I need to learn that because I'm running a training course in two weeks. But <laughs> it's a pretty leaky building. And I was on the ground and people were failing to that level quite badly. But what I would say is, I would stand in the room and I would open the window in the living room, fully open wide. And I would say to the builder, if I opened this window and I told you, you couldn't close this window the entire time that somebody lived here. And now let's take a close, potentially an elderly relative of yours and say, Mm -hmm. they're going to buy this house. Could be your grandmother, your mother, your grandfather, whatever is going to buy this house, but you can't close this window the entire time you're here. 
you have to heat this house. You have to stay warm when it snows and you have to stay cool when it's warm, but you're not allowed to close this window. What would you say? You say, well, that's ridiculous. But you've been building this way for 20, 30 years. Right. All of the homes you've ever built are like this. You just don't know it. Or for Wall Street, pet sell me this pen moment, right? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But it works. You can see on their face the change. There's always a bunch of people. Houses need to breathe. You don't need to worry about this. We used to stick air bricks in. Sometimes people don't want to change. They want to build what they build because they know what they know. Yeah, and they and change is painful. But if you can explain it to them in terms that just like that, where you say, you know, you have this big hole in your window, one meter squared by one meter squared, in your property. Mm. all year round and you've been building like this for years and all I'm asking you to do is close the window by making a few small changes. I'm not asking you to spend $15,000 on membranes. I'm not asking you to knock the building down and redo it. I'm asking you to make good in the bathroom. I'm asking you to make good behind the kitchen cupboards, things that you should be doing anyway. And that's how I did my personal selling pitch to them. Of course, you know, I've been thrown out of properties. Um, There's a couple of builders in the UK where I'm not really allowed to go onto their building sites anymore, but I don't mind. I'm happy with that. I won't name them because I'll get sued, but it's all part of the fight. And that's what I would say to anybody that questions about air tightness is if just think a 10 is the equivalent of a one meter squared by one meter squared window open the entire time you're at home. And think about that when you're thinking about an elderly person living in the cold. So just so you know, two days ago, we did a, took a 1950s home that started out with a 9.4 ACH 50 and got it down to 3.2, no windows. And we had to makeshift some windows. All the lights in the ceiling weren't in. We had to put vapor hats on for the test. None of the floors or most of the floors were down. So, and that equivalent was, took it from about, I think it was 434 square inches down to 167 square inches. When you explain that to somebody, 437 square inch opening that has been there in your analogy of the open window, it's a great analogy. It gets people to think yeah. about it. There are complications. I always say this. Sometimes you can have an open window. Sometimes you can have a building that's quite leaky, but you won't feel those effects. And that's why it's not being properly regulated. You won't feel those effects for many reasons, mainly because of stack effect, wind direction, temperature change. There's lots of things that affect air tightness. And somebody created a, a terrible paper on, on LinkedIn a while ago, and I can't remember their name, but effectively it said air tightness wasn't a thing. And I came back at them and said, well, they did, you know, ventilation wasn't needed. This complex ventilation systems that are starting to become very popular. And, and it kind of demiffed a bunch of the science. And I was able to cut them down very quickly and say, hey, yeah, there's no such thing as air leakage when the outside temperature and the inside temperature remain the same and there's no wind. You don't get air movement from one side to the other. How one day you? Great. <laughs> Fantastic. In the same token, a stopped clock is correct twice a day, isn't it? Yeah. Because temperature is going to rise and temperature is going to fall. There is a few minutes maybe where there is zero air leakage in your home. But when it's minus 40 outside and, and you want your house nice and warm at plus 40, then the air leakage oh. is incredible. It's, it's significantly amplified from yeah. normal conditions and we still to this day have even even the scientists even the people coming fresh out of university and doing thesis on air leakage and saying it's not really a thing and i say come down to the building performance hub give me 15 seconds to prove to you why air leakage is important i can do it in just 15 seconds and i'll change your mind 
It's incredible. Theory and practice are two very, very different things. In theory, it's not as important. In practice, it's incredibly important because you take into account all of the factors. Particularly in North America where you, I mean, the UK is a very temperate climate. In North America, the climate zones are extreme. So like take Alberta or Calgary, you know, you can have like, it can go down to minus 40 C and it can go up to plus 35 C in a year. Yeah. And in some days you can get a range not too far from that. Am I right? Exactly. So, yeah, we can get all four seasons in a day. And this is conversations I've been having with Sean in Australia. And I say, there is a bunch of climate zones in the US and Australia where air leakage is less effective. But there are a bunch of climate zones where it's incredibly important. Yeah. Let's focus on the easy wins. Let's make those buildings that have the extreme heat and the extreme cold, Mm -hmm. airtight, ventilated and insulated. Those magic three, the magic triangle. There's another great analogy I've got, if you're a fan of analogies, which it sounds like you guys are, is one of the things I do when I run a training course for air tightness, which I don't get to do as much anymore, but I used to give people a cardboard box, just a straightforward cardboard box. And I used to say to them, imagine that I filled this with hot air. How long do you think that air would stay warm for? And they would say, well, a few minutes, maybe it's just cardboard. You'd get a few minutes before the heat equalized with the outside temperature. Like a great. I'll take another box and I've wrapped it in insulation. And I've said, how long do you think this box would stay warm for? They go, oh, that would stay warm for ages. I said, great. What would you say if I was to put this box over your head and fill it with warm air and seal it all off? It'd go, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't want that. Why wouldn't you want that? Because effectively you'd create an air quality problem. I said, great. Well, what I'm going to do then is take this box that's covered in insulation and I'm going to stab a bunch of holes in it so that you can breathe better. What would you say then? And they go, oh, that's better. And I say, what you've actually got here is a, a physical thing of, of how we build buildings. We have a cardboard box. We wrap it in insulation and we punch a bunch of holes in it. And then we expect it to stay warm. And we use those holes and call them holes for air quality or ventilation. And it's a terrible way of building. What you do if you had an option would be to wrap, take the box, keep it as sealed as you can, wrap it in insulation, and then you would put some controlled holes in it, maybe one in, one out, so you could stop the brakes and you would put some tubing in to make sure that you could move that air around the box into the right places so you don't get stale air. And it's as simple as that. Air tightness, ventilation, insulation. Well, this is the whole systems approach, right? So when you start tightening up buildings, particularly as tight as we're talking about here, the whole building as a system becomes important because the IAQ and IEQ and I'm triggering you here, Robert, <laughs> you know, the ventilation matters. The heat and the cooling really start to matter at this point, right? The quality of the engineering and how that integrates with the facade and the air tightness really start to matter, right? So yeah. cooling as a system starts to become super important. I say to people all the time, air tightness and this kind of building system and the fabric first approach yeah. is both as simple and as complicated as you like. Yeah. And sometimes to people, you know, to you guys, we can go complicated. We can get technical. We can talk about putting stuff on the outside of buildings. We can talk about yeah. airflow in cavities. We can talk about drainage, all of those things. But in reality, for most of the people I talk to, it's about conveying a simple message. Make a building airtight. Make a building breathe through a controlled method and wrap it in insulation so that the heat from the outside that won't come in. And when it's cold, the heat from inside won't go out. It's as simple as that. It's so simple. Yes, there's engineering. We pay engineers a bunch of money to figure this stuff out and to make homes better. But ultimately, 
contractors are only ever going to build what they need to build, what they're legally required to build. There's a bunch, yeah, don't get me wrong, there's a bunch of good contractors, there's some incredible ones. Yeah, building code is the minimum worst code. There's that saying that's been going around ages, it's the legally minimum worst building you're allowed to build. You're a borderline criminal if you only just meet the regs. You shouldn't be proud if you're just meeting the regs. Bunch of those things kicking around, and I, and I agree with them. Just meeting the building regulations shouldn't be something you're proud of. It should be something you're ashamed of. But the cold, hard reality of the construction industry is it's driven by finances. Why would you spend a huge amount of money on something, an extra 100 mil of insulation? We all know an extra 100 mil of insulation will make that property way better. But it will also cost you £100,000. And if you're building 10,000 units this year, and on each of those, you need to spend an extra £50,000, say, mm. that's, an inc- that's your profit margin down oh, yeah, the drain, no. because effectively, you don't need to spend that money. And that's where the UK market has done quite well with our SAP model. It's not perfect, but in the UK, we have a what we call building modelling that needs to be done on every single building. It's called a SAP calculation, mm. Standard Assessment Procedure. And what we do is model each building and we say, here are the U-values of the walls. Here are the U-values of the windows. Here are the size of the windows. Here's the type of boiler we're going to include. Here's the size of the radiator. There's a bunch of stuff we have to put into this calculation. One of those is air tightness testing, the air tightness result. We now have the overheating assessment that's just dropped in. But we have a bunch of stuff that's calculated and says, this house is good. And it gives us the freedom to say, hey, if we add some solar panels, onto the roof, we can install a less sufficient boiler somewhere else because we're trading off one for another. Or I don't really want to put solar panels on the roof because it's not a great area that's very shaded with lots of trees or tall buildings around. So what I'm going to do is put in an extremely efficient boiler system and something else. And that allows me to not have to put solar panels on, but it does allow me to not have to worry about other things. It's a big trade-off. And I'm a big fan of that model because it gives builders and engineers freedom to understand what's best for your building. I think there can be lessons learned there for other countries. Is Atma mostly dealing with residential or are you doing commercial as well? We do commercial as well, but over the last few years since I've been doing this job, and this is no coincidence, I can assure you, there's been a recession and a pandemic. So both of those things don't really suit building. Yeah, they don't really suit building big commercial buildings. Because of the money situation that kind of kicked in, we did have this building schools for futures program where the government were building a huge number of schools. They were knocking down schools all over the place. But the cold hard fact is when the money gets tight, people move out of their big buildings into smaller buildings. So you don't tend to build as many big buildings. And now with the pandemic, that had the exact same effects. We have these huge offices in London that are empty because everybody's working from home. And I still sit on the fence about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But so we have a lot of resource. So there's no need to build these big buildings because we already have so many buildings that are freely available. There's a bunch of projects that are going on. And that creates a problem in that we just aren't, we're only building a few thousand a year in the UK. But yeah, it's definitely very much about big buildings as little buildings. And they come with very, very different problems of air tightness, particularly stack effect where warm air rises and creates funneling. And funneling can create cold because it drags warm air up and replaces it with cold air from outside. Or the opposite can happen if you're cooling the building. The UK is an interesting market because there is a societal trend towards refurbishment of high-rise rather than knocking them down and building them. But there's also a trend, certainly in North America, that cultural trend is there of high-rise condo apartment living, right? 
So you've got yeah. residential buildings that look like massive commercial buildings. And testing them on a suite basis so far, in my experience, is how that's happened from an airtightness point of view. But, you know, testing the whole building at scale is a big enterprise, right? Did you get involved in that? It's quite tough. Yeah, I've done a fair few of those. And the test itself is actually quite simple. When we do our level two training here, the test itself is just you put fans in the door, you pull air out or blow air in. The test is just a big glorified dwelling test. The hard part of a test like that is actually setting up. I'm a big fan and I've always argued kind of against a good chunk of the industry, particularly the passive house industry, about testing of the individual suites of the individual homes or apartments or condos. And there is a reason that we've not yet touched on, which is air tightness is directly linked to fire. Yes. Fire is a bit of a taboo word at the moment, particularly with high rise, but it needs discussed. And air tightness testing of each individual apartment is a very powerful tool because if air leaks from an apartment, it's going somewhere. And that somewhere could be, would be, in the event of a fire, a smoke path because the air gets pressurized or depressurized. I can never remember which one it is, pressurized, I think. And the smoke travels through those gaps and cracks. And we all know smoke will kill you before a fire will. So by doing air tightness testing, you're actually testing for those gaps, which could be smoke leakage paths. And that is way more important than energy use in terms of immediate risk. So I always have this conversation with people that we should be talking about this. Air tightness is directly linked to fire. And I don't want to use that as a way of saying, hey, you should air test everything, because that's not how I want to come across. I want to highlight that even if you do a sample it's way better than just doing nothing or pretending that problem doesn't exist. Yeah. So that's the yeah. lead approach like to tobacco smoke, cross-contamination. So lead have done yeah, it's, like that, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely, thing. yeah. But in the UK, so ASG where I work, um, we have SAD engineering team, like fire life safety, acoustics team, and they are now, because of the changes in building regulations in the UK, really working together on schemes because they all affect each other. And the fire life safety thing after Grenfell is really forcing that conversation and that solution. So we're in a situation in the UK where you can meet building code and still local authorities are saying, no, 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 this is socially unacceptable. That you'll have a high-rise building in the UK with one staircase that meets building code, but the reality is socially it's unacceptable, right? So there's a lot of change going on, but the UK has very well-developed, strict building code compared to, say, North America, right? North America is like 50 countries bubbled together with paper clips, right? <laughs> and uh, they've all got different, slightly different regs and different things going on and different levels of lobby. Lobbying is a lot more powerful in North America as well. So in your industry, for example, there are other organizations like the NEBB have uh, building envelope certification training and, uh, and courses. There's several other organizations. Interestingly, the new president of the Building Commission Association in the US is a building envelope specialist, and his firm yeah. just does that. So your entry to the US is going to be interesting because you're going to challenge the existing players there, right? And yeah. the US is a very clubby place, so I wish you luck with that. But I think your killer app is this lodgement scheme. Yeah, it's the lodgement scheme. It's yeah. the app that works on iPad and Android. Yeah. And it's the way that we are run that first got Elliot interested because we are truly run as a not-for-profit. I can hand on heart say my salary is not substantial. We're burying $200,000 a year in in fees here or there, or suddenly I'm driving a Rolls Royce. We're run as a not-for-profit. All of our board of directors 
our scheme committee members and they four times a year we meet and they keep me honest. They'll look at my expenses. They'll ask me questions. It's a day long grilling about what can we do and how can we do it better and where should we take the next direction? And they keep the scheme really honest. And that's probably what I would say is one of our unique selling points is the structure and the openness. And then having the lodgement system with the data, sharing that data, whether the answer is what you want to hear or what you don't want to hear, we share the answer anyway, because it's such a massive amount of data, it it can't lie. Are you open source with the data? Not fully open source. You can submit a form to us and we'll release that. We yeah. tend to be very kind to people, to universities. If universities want to look at the mm-hmm. data, it will all be anonymized. We never yeah. allow people to figure out which plots are which. We just give kind of hard numbers. So, yeah, we tend to be very kind to universities. We don't tend to be as open to businesses. It's just the business model that we have. Uh, we want stuff to be out there. We want people to be looking at the data. We just don't want that data exploited or our business model exploited. And I think that will help us. We've only opened these conversations for quite literally a few weeks, really. Florida was the first time that we started at the IBEC conference and the momentum we've got and the support we've got has been unbelievable. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. People can join Atma from abroad. We won't necessarily set up as a US business if it doesn't work that way. But the support we've actually got is way bigger than just air tightness. We've got the acoustics world, we've got the fenestration world, all wanting to have a lodgement and The other thing we've not discussed, which I probably should definitely sneak in, is that we have this concept called building passport. Right. So because we have the lodgement systems for acoustics, for air tightness, for ventilation, all this data is recorded. We actually have the ability to look at how a building was designed through the SAP model, through the energy modeling. And then we have how the building was tested. And we're able to look at that data and say, if a building has this type of construction, then this is the typical output. And no one else is able to do that in the world right now in the way we are. And that's what makes part of what we do unique. And if we can add fenestration to that, if we can add any other type of testing to our lodgement system, we have an in-house development team. So we can very quickly react to that type of marketplace. We're able to put ourselves front and center and say, data is gold. Data is how we run our business. It allows us to cherry pick which audits we need to do. It highlights to us who might not be playing by the rules. And it's just what we do and how we do it. We're so proud of it that we think that is our unique selling point into the marketplace. Well, there's no doubt about it. When you come into a marketplace and there's already other players, with your ethos, you're going to elevate the game. Yeah, that's the worst that happens. Great. Right, you get to elevate the game. When I think about Ashray, Riva, Simsi, these are all organizations that exist, but They are competitors, but they're not. There's a lot of collegial work that goes on amongst all of the organizations. Whenever there's an issue, for example, COVID would bring them all together. When I think about the uh, IEQGA, which is the Indoor Environmental Quality General Alliance, you know, it's comprised of, I think, about eight or nine founding associations from all over the world, which represent hundreds of thousands of engineers. So, within their own districts, you know, they have their schemes and whatever that they're doing, but Collectively, they have a single voice, and there's no reason yeah. why in the building testing world that that couldn't happen as well. And it brings strength and power and elevates the game. Yeah, and the important thing is is we're here. The reason this business exists is for better buildings. It's not for profit. It's yeah. to create better buildings. And exactly as you say, if we come into the industry and 
we force a bunch of companies that already exist to elevate what they do to create a lodgement system to work towards better standards to increase the level of auditing they do on construction sites and to get more hands-on in the way that ATMA does and to promote quality buildings in the way that ATMA and SITMA and the BCTA group does. Fantastic. I will have achieved my goal without having to step foot in the US. Great. If not, we'll come in and we'll do it. We've got the resource, we've got the ability, we've got the template. It's cookie cutter, as you'd say, and we can step in quite quickly. Either way, we're coming and we're going to try and do our little bit. And I always say that airtightness testing is one very small piece of construction. I never pretend that airtightness is everything. Airtightness is 0.01% of a bit of construction. The rest of the industry has to also step up. And I'm not going to name bits of the industry, but all of the industry, I think, can improve in their own little way. And the construction industry needs to, to some extent. We need to improve quality. We definitely need to improve quality in the UK. And there's a bunch of trades that are doing that. There's a bunch of really cool companies that are doing that. And we can improve construction. We can improve people coming into construction. We'll improve the output of construction as well. So in America, my advice to you, I've got a lot of experience over there. You're either going to have to form an alliance with the power players there in your industry, or you're going to have to go in there and commit hard to that place. You cannot half-ass America. Yeah, it's just too big. You need American (laughs) accent. You need someone with an American accent to go around. We've definitely got one of those, Mr. Bill Coulter. He is our biggest fan and he's already doing wonders for us out there. Oh, and actually we have them in four corners of the US, an alliance we call the NABCTA, North American Building Compliance Testers Association. It's a bit of a mouthful, but we already have voices in different states that's going to allow us kind of six entry points with six people cheerleading rather than just kind of one person trying to break America. It didn't work for Robbie Williams, but he needs more cheerleaders. Yeah, Robbie Williams has other stuff going on, like <laughs> cocaine every day. Allegedly, allegedly. had a um, business client that was American-based, but they had a European division and they wanted to bring in a product. And the market share was already established by one or two players. You know, they had between the two of them, they probably, well, they had close to 80% market share. It's like a, whatever, 50-30 split or something. There was another 20% that was there sort of lying beside. And, and I, that was my advice to them. They didn't like to hear it, but I said, listen, everybody's already riding on tight margins and you want to come into America and try to take market shares. Just stay home. Good luck, yeah. <laughs> stay home. But this is a little bit different story and the fact that you've got cheerleaders on the continent, you know, carrying the flag, that's a big step. And Yeah, I definitely wouldn't do it without them, that's for sure. Yeah. The talks that we had before this one, we had our pre-conversation and today's conversation, you can sense sort of the quality of the organization. And, you know, Adam, we always like the good stories. Yeah. And you have a great story. And I think that's probably a good way to sort of wind up today's presentation. We're getting on into the talk here, but you've got a great story, Barry, and we wish you luck. Thanks for coming on the show. I mean, I could do this more often. We barely even touched on acoustics. Maybe in 25 episodes time, you get me back. Yeah, we'd love to have somebody on acoustics. We'll talk acoustics because acoustics is an incredibly deep subject. Acoustics for me is like my favorite child. Everyone's got one. Yeah. Well, and people that are listening need to know we're in COVID times right now and people, there's so much focus on air quality, but people yeah. really need to understand pre-COVID and post-COVID sound is that still the number one biggest complaint in buildings today. 
it has been for a long, long time. And that, until we address that, we're going to have sound issues. Yeah, and, and even more so that we're all at home now. And yep. working yep. at home yep. has become the new thing. Our offices are next to our neighbours. And yeah, we deal with so many noise complaints yep. in the UK and our regulations definitely need a revision. We need to improve the sound insulation. But yeah, if you guys would have me, I would love to. We'll give people a break from my voice, but I'd love to come back and just talk acoustics with you guys. Uh, no, in the post-COVID world as well, one thing COVID has highlighted is that the ventilation of buildings is, let's say, inadequate yeah. <laughs> at <Yeah>. the moment. <laughs> yeah. Control, volume, and so many other measures, right? And then that Absolutely. brings on the whole IAQ, IEQ. That's something that I think building codes will start to address going forward. But the key thing here to take away is, the way the UK have gone with the building code regulations that says, right, every house, dwelling, property has to be tested. That is pretty significant. That's a sea change, right? If you could start getting out of some jurisdictions in the US, there are certain jurisdictions in the US that are important, like California, Florida, right? And how they go tends to be how other states go. New York is another one. you know. And those, all those jurisdictions are actually open to what you're doing, I think. If I could say anything to them, if one happens to be a listener, be brave, be the change, because yes, people are going to lobby, but the reality is in the UK that a blower door test now can be, you know, if you're doing it on massive, you're doing probably at least four or five, you'll get them for 50 pound, which is what, $60, $70. There's different, you know, fuel for us is the biggest cost. And for you guys, even though it's getting expensive at the moment, it's incredibly cheap. But And I know you have to travel further, but actually the more testing that's done, the cheaper it will be. And that model is proven. So in the UK, testing is, it reached a bottom a while ago and it stayed there. And it's a great career. If anybody wants to get into testing, I'd highly advise they do so. They can, they can sit one of the training courses. But yeah, if anyone is listening, be brave, be the change, be the difference, and you won't regret it. We'll see the quality of construction go up. Yeah. So Adam, we each have a question for you, sort of a quick fire question. We'll just pull it out of our head and then we'll wind up today's talk. So my question for you is, and the answer I'm looking from you for is, let's just say we're 100 years in the future and we've seen quantum changes in the building industry across the world and consumers are getting products that they should have had 100 years previously. What happened? Why are people 100 years from now going to get a good product when they're young, getting one now? What took place? I'll tell you why. It will be because people stop accepting mediocre. Mm. So if you, if you brought a car, $50,000 car, and you heard a rattle coming from somewhere, you'd be straight back to the dealer. You wouldn't even get five miles down the road. You'd be back to the dealer saying, fix the rattle. Unacceptable. I've paid this much for the car. But people will buy a million-dollar house that won't perform. They won't be able to heat. They won't be able to cool. They get condensation. They get damp. They get mold everywhere. And they accept it without Mm. saying a thing. And it's the people that need to stop accepting mediocre and start kicking back at the developers and saying, not acceptable. I want better. And that will only happen when the tables turn and we're not forced into buying just because it's the only thing we can afford. And that will only happen when consumers get choice. House buying in the Anglo-Saxon world is a cult, is a straight-up cult with no disobedience allowed. Yep. You will buy this piece of crap and you will like it. I mean, you see in London, in London, it's yeah. not uncommon to receive between 20 and 40 offers on a property yeah. from different people because it's what they can afford. It's in their budget. They don't care if that's got mold on the walls. They'll figure that stuff out later. So only when the tide turns and the people stop accepting mediocre will that happen. Otherwise, in answer to your question, 100 years from now, we'll still be in the same place. 
Maybe yeah. with slightly better regulations, but we'll still be in the same place. You need a bias strike. All right. Yeah. Adam. So my question is, I've made you King Barry the first, and you can change yeah. any building regulation you want, but just one. What are you going to change? Ooh, that's a great question. I would say if I could change any one, uh, probably part L, I would make a fabric first approach, maybe not as high, as low and high performing as Passive House is an incredible standard for those of you. Passive House is, is a building that's so energy efficient. It requires almost no heating or cooling because it maintains its temperature. I would very much reduce the U-value requirements. I would, I would make homes way more higher performing as standard. So we would call that the notional building in the UK, which is yeah. the, the building you start with in the energy code. I would say that our insulation needs to increase, thermal bridging needs to reduce, glazing performance needs to go up, air tightness targets need to come down, ventilation needs to be system four as mandatory, and that's where I would draw the line. If we start now, we might be able to save the world. So you yeah, go so performance-based, essentially, right? Fabric-first, performance-based, Yes, it will increase the cost of homes, but we'll recover from that. That's my first law that I pass as King Barry the first. King <laughs> Barry. I like that. <laughs> I might start that in the office. They should bow to me as I come in. behind you everywhere you go. Make sure your crown fits. <laughs> yeah. Don't let your head get too big. <laughs> okay, Barry. Well, listen, thank you very much for coming on the show. We wish you all the best in your devils. Yeah. doing great work here. Nice. And this is how things change, right? Someone has to make a stand and push the envelope out to use the pun, pun intended, I guess. Keep doing what you're doing, man. Keep trucking on and uh, check back in with us and let us know how it's going. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Thank you so much, guys, for having me. Yes. It's been a pleasure. Go forth and save the world. Yeah. I'll do my very best. <laughs> the Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Blue Rhythm is the commissioning software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. Frankly, it's just chaos out there. Blue Rhythm removes this chaos. It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet, or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is their painless and fast onboarding process. That team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue Rhythm for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional and functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, Go to bluerhythm.com or call country code plus one six one two four six zero eight three zero five. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode 26 of the Edifice Complex podcast. Robert, Robert, we there yet? I'm bored. <laughs> Adam, it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from SensorSuite. Go on. SensorSuite, yep. They're an innovator of smart building technology. We like them. They can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you time and energy. You mean SensorSuite are moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century? Yeah, I know. Another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it, and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains. Okay, I'm in. How do I find out more? 
Got to go to sensorsuite.com or call 1-855-773-6767. And also check out the July 2020 episode of the NFS Complex podcast and listen to Sensorsuite CEO Glenn Spry. And now back to the show. I love some of the bits of wisdom that Perry shared and his story about not smart enough to whatever they told him weren't smart enough. And then look what he went and did. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> yeah, that, that was my story. Like, got booted out of school. I was destined to be in, like, go nowhere. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. just wake up one day. And the beauty of the UK system, and I'm pretty sure it's all like this, you, there's a, there are paths to get back on track. Mm-hmm. You can, like, completely screw up, take a horrible left turn, wake <laughs> up, realize you screwed up, and then get back on track, right? All right, you're behind, yeah. but time-wise, but there's still a path. And I love that about the UK. And engineers just don't have the status in the UK that they have in other parts of the world. It's just, oh, you know, they go to college, be an engineer, that'll work out, okay? And, you know, it's not like, oh, you're an engineer. There's none of that going on over there. (laughs) No, there's, yeah. For those that are listening to the audio version of this, I mean, it's, Barry's not exactly, uh, he still has his hair and it's not gray yet. He looks young. (laughs) He looks mid-30s, tops, I'd say. Yeah, well, and what I liked about it, he was talking about 21 years old and he was at the right place at the right time. Yeah. 21 years of age and you're aware of that and talking about, you know, having a vision and a dream. For our listeners and parents, the kids that are trying to figure out what they're doing, even having a vision and teaching your kids to, you know, that, I mean, it's okay to think sky and the pie, pie in the sky stuff. Yeah. Sometimes those visions turn into amazing things and change the world. And that's sort of what Barry ended this, our discussion with, you know, saving the world. <laughs> King yeah. Barry. It's like a Marvel movie origin arc, right? Story arc. You know, I went at 21, I thought I was going to be a professional skateboarder. That's how stupid I was. And he was already had the mindset. He was knew he was onto something. I was not even close to that. that yeah. you know I mean? So he's, what occurred to me is all three of us have made that social journey from like knowing what we want to do, being in the trade level and then moving through to a professional level and then mm-hmm. leading certain things, right? That is more unusual than I realized, actually, that whole journey. People like jump into a box and stay in a box, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But yeah. it's unusual to see that journey. I love seeing that journey where he's made that thing his own, right? And he's making a difference. So the question is, you know, are you making a difference to the world? Well, he certainly is, right, with what he's doing. And the fact he's managed to get people in America interested in that fascinates me because America oh, is totally. a walled garden, man. That is a walled garden and it's unculture. Yeah. And a few things I've learned working there and seeing businesses fail there is, one, you need an American leading that. It's not that racist. They just want American terms of American, right? And then you need someone who knows how to navigate the culture there because culture is a big thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a unique place. I don't know if we talked about this in one of the previous shows. There was... Uh, you know, all the big control companies had a presence in North America, including European ones. Yeah. And um, there was a family, the Canoevers, that came over from Germany and started up a company called Techmar. Right. It's actually, the company existed in Europe already, but they assimilated into the local culture. Like they made an effort to be Canadian, even though they were European mm-hmm. and was through and with patience and building trust, building relationships, understanding the culture that they were able to succeed when some of the big European companies continually failed because they came in with bravado and 
their ISO certifications and, you know, all their engineers and their research work and their big budgets, but they failed to understand what it meant to somebody that was in Peckett City, Yellowknife. Yeah. You know, we don't care your brand name and your logos and your certifications. All we know is when it's minus 50 degrees, if you're not here helping me get my system working, you're crap. Right. <laughs> the culture is always the thing that's managed poorly, I think, when a firm tries to enter. Totally. And if you go there like, oh, the know it all, you poor people, you don't know what you're doing, you know, listen to me, I'm the, I am the new king here. And, yeah. you know, that's just, forget it, man. You, you just hang <laughs> your bags and go, you know, it's not going to work. Not going to work. Yeah. yeah. You have to earn your right. Yes. To do business on a big scale in this country. And for those that are listening from abroad, it's painful. I mean, many companies have come here and gone with the tail between their legs, broke, mm. despair. <laughs> yeah, they go, oh, just put my guy in there. He'll have a little office. He'll build it. I said, no. Whenever someone, now and again, people ask me, you know, should I open an office here? How should I do it? My answer is always, if you really want to do it, and I can't talk you out of it, you've got to buy a local company. Yeah. And then reinvent that company slowly but surely. Someone who's embedded with relationships and can guide you through the cultural pitfalls you're going to fall into, right? And yeah, and for those, again, listening, that's a good strategy. But if you do that strategy, don't F with it. No. If it's <laughs> like don't all of a sudden say, okay, now we own the company yeah. and uh, we're, now we're going to turn you into us again. Well, no, that's the whole point of buying the company is leave the company alone. Yes. If they're successful without you. You bought them. <laughs> because yeah. they were successful. So don't mess with it, right? Because they it's do that, don't they? I know, I know. If you're like Schneider or some huge conglomerate, you're like a city-state almost, right? You feel you can do anything. And I see so many companies come to North America and they just get their asses handed to them. Like Korean is a great example. Massive UK company came into Canada and just got beaten to death. Now, they didn't go <laughs> bust because they effed up in Canada. They just didn't make no progress in Canada while they went bust somewhere else. But they yeah. just got beaten because they just came in and didn't know how to play the game, didn't know yeah. how to play the unions, didn't know how to play the local market, didn't know how to lobby, and it's just culturally different. Yeah, and like that example I was giving you where it was a control company and they wanted to know if they should come over to North America and try to beat the two guys that already owned the marketplace. And I said, what do you got? What do you have that's going to allow you to play in that game? They said, well, yeah. we've got quality. <laughs> Dude, come on. Like, that's just... Everybody has quality. If you don't have quality, you're not even in the starting gate, yeah. right? And so at the end of the day, all you have is price. And so what you're going to do is you're going to come here for what? Three years, work on no margins, and all you're going to do is destroy the market. And after that, you're going to say, man, we can't make it go here. <laughs> so it's just yeah. Don't even start. Like put your money into some other place as an investment, right? But they have their egos and they think that they can change the world. And It is ego. It's totally ego because no one wakes up in the morning in Northern Ireland and goes, God, I've got to get me some European equality. <laughs> There's no one ever. <laughs> I mean, if you think about the automobile industry, one thing about America is they are slow, but they're not stupid. You know, like when you think about Deming, right, and quality, okay, well, all right, you know, Deming tries to convince the North American automobile industry that you can do something better, and everybody goes, yeah, 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 okay, fine. So he doesn't have an audience. So he goes to, you know, Asia, sells it, and then now the Asian product, well, the Americans wake up and they go, oops. Yeah. Okay, all right. America does that a lot. Oops, yeah. we made a mistake, but now we're going to fix it. And then we become intolerant to the shit that we first ignored. That and that's what happens. Observation in America says America always does the right thing after they've exhausted every other option. <laughs> <laughs> 
Absolutely. That goes back to when Barry talked about change and not accepting mediocre. Yeah. And, you know, and then we've had the example before between, you know, the cars and the houses and why, you know, people won't tolerate the shit in cars anymore. Like, no, we're done. We're done putting up with the lemons. We've paid you X number of thousands of dollars for the car. It damn well better work. And then we have an idea of value too. So if you buy a $15,000 car, you're going to get a $15,000 car. It's not going to have a whole lot of bells and whistles, but it's not going to like break down either. No, it's going to start every time. Yeah. You know? There's no delusion about going to buy a $15,000 car and expect it to be a Ferrari or Porsche no. or whatever, a Lamborghini. Like, we're not that dumb, <laughs> you know? But we also expect if you're going to spend $150,000 on a Tesla or whatever, it's going to give you everything that you're going to get for hundred fifty grand. Yeah, but you're going to expect it to work. I said Barry was spot on there because he said what it really needs is a buyer strike in housing. Right. People just mm-hmm. got to stop buying bad housing. You just got to sit in here and say that we ain't doing this anymore because that's the only... Aggregate disobedience is the only power consumers have, right? Ask BlackBerry how that turned out when consumers yeah, right? decided they didn't like them anymore. It yeah. was over. They went from that to that in two years, right? Yeah. So, you know, consumer disobedience is the most powerful force that people don't actually recognize until it's behind them, right? And that's yeah. what the housing and the property industry needs, consumer disobedience. It needs people to say, no, no, I'm not doing that. Stop. Yeah, well, so we're April 26, 2022. Netflix is taking a nosedive because of that. Yeah. Aggregate disobedience. People are fed up. Look at where people are stressed out, inflation and interest rates are going up. They're looking at cutting costs and they're going, what are we getting for our money from Netflix? We can get better quality, better selection, more choices from other entertainment services than we can from Netflix. So see you yeah. later. What was their dump? 35% drop in share. 35% drop in share price in the last six weeks, I think. It's been (laughs) (laughs) And what was the, what they were trying to put through, and it wasn't an unreasonable price increase. It was like a dollar or something a month. It wasn't, but. They've hit that tipping point now. They did. No, that's it, right? Now you've got to operationally become more efficient is what what the market's saying to them, right? Yeah. But that's, again, competition. Consumer disobedience, right? Mm. So housing has restrained competition due to land banking, lobbying, and corruption at local levels. And on top of that, the cult of people going, oh, I've got to buy a home, I've got to buy a home. So it's the best investment ever. When you analyze it at any mathematical level, it's not. And yeah. it's a total cult. So you put cult with like corruption and lobbying and land banking. That is a, I'm in a house that's probably worth two million. And to build it, maybe 700,000, right? Yeah. There's probably a million dollars of BS in this house price. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that needs to be a line item, right? Yeah. Land cost, capital cost, yeah. capital replacement cost, and then BS. Yeah, that's BS. This is <laughs> going to build me a million bucks for the bullshit. That's yeah. the game when everyone's in the cult. You have to play the game, right? Yeah. It's like mortgage-backed securities. I always remember an interview with the HSBC guy, and the guys. He was being interviewed after the market crashed. He said, why are you doing it? He said, it's like musical chairs. When everybody's doing it, you've got to do it. You just can't be the guy who's last in. And I was, unfortunately. <laughs> and they yeah. fired him. <laughs> but that's the game. But I know, I think, going back to Barry, though, I think he's doing great work. That is a great example of making a career for yourself. Oh, right? no, kidding. Yeah. 86% of all tests that are done in the UK goes through this thing that he started. Yeah. 86%. That lodgement system and the open, and not open source, the semi-open source data 
Because mm. what he's really getting onto there was he's starting to work out what he's got there. And you start cross-referencing that and you can start giving advice and saying, you know, if you build a house this way, the outcome's complete in this quintile, not this quintile, right? Yeah. And that starts to become powerful. That's probably monetizable later on at some point. Yeah, yeah and the model, that model has existed. In fact, we had a guest, a couple of guests on the young lady from Mexico, the engineer. Anyways, we were talking about, it was something to do with QEG databases brain scans, right? They were using a neurological testing. And so you could say, okay, well, this is what normal brains look like. This is what the brain of an ADHD person looks like, right? Mm -hmm. And so the database exists and all you have to do is compare your scans, right? And if, well, for that, if you're diagnosed with X and it doesn't look like the database of X is, mm -hmm. well, then maybe you got the wrong diagnosis, right? Well, building data is the same thing. And he's on the right path. I mean, you get enough data about different types of buildings, how they were constructed, how they're conditioned, all the failures and the successes within the enclosure, the architecture, the mechanical systems, interior design, then you get to understand how if then, right? Yeah. So when a building comes up and starts to have problems, people don't have to guess. They say, well, based on history, based on our database, these buildings exhibited the same characteristics. So it's a high probability your building has these same issues too. That's powerful. Yeah, very powerful. I think Slowly but surely, the industry is moving in the right direction, like mass data, data analysis. And yeah, for sure. But it's just too slow at the moment, right? Oh. It's like turning an ocean liner around. For God's sake, someone just hit hard right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, when we started this podcast, God, I, mean, I don't remember how long ago it was. I'm just actually looking at the website. This is four or five years ago, maybe. Is that, it's been like that, hasn't it? Haven't aged a bit. <laughs> some of the very first interviews we did talked about databases yeah right that's my thing if we open sourced a lot of the data yeah a building is green how or a building is net zero how that has to be based on open source benchmarking and data yeah i'm just looking at our past like the I'm very some of the very first ones like yeah going back it's crazy i mean from memory on building envelope and facade stuff we've had Elio and mla right yeah, and Paul Gezi, you know, we have to get Paul back on again. What he's been doing, you know, because he's made some huge acquisitions. He is one hundred percent in the building data business. That guy now. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. And he yeah. is crushing it at the moment. They are really doing well. They're starting to sign up a lot of REITs to their yeah. technology. But what they are doing at the moment, so they've got a lot of IoT type technology going in, and they're starting to collect this massive data. And they haven't done anything with these big data dumps they're getting. Yeah. You know, that's the next source of revenue for them, right? They're going to start mm. getting that. They're going to start analyzing it and they're going to start getting insights out of it. That's the next source of money for them. Yeah. Big, big time. And we live in really, was it Steve Burrows said this is the best time to be in construction? He's probably right. Because the yeah, change, totally. change being driven by technology mm -hmm. is actually fascinating. And the, the industry's reluctance to change is not strong enough to stop the technology making them change. It's just yeah. slow, right? Yeah. So, you know, no one in our industry wants to change yet. There are design tools and data tools and software tools now that are just basically infiltrating the business and forcing change. And slowly, your local authorities are starting to change building codes and regulations. Remember yeah, what Spain sure. always said, Said so Alvey said, change will come at the municipal level. And he was right with that. You know, Absolutely. Municipality differentiate yeah. itself. Yeah. I always get excited about this because you can't tell. 
from looking at our first episode, other than you and I yeah. saying, oh, here's what we're going to do. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't know where it's going to go, yeah. but here's what the plan is. And so yeah. our first episode was with uh, Dr. Nick Clements, who was with the Well Group, Behavioral Building Science. That was uh, September 10th, 2017. So we're coming up on five years, Adam. (laughs) But here's the cool thing is that everybody that we've had on has talked about their journey. And what we get to observe is how their communication has started to mold the industry around the world. The things that the people that we've had on, the things that they've said have depth and influence and they're changing things and only because of the connections that we have and people want to come on the show and but we've had some amazing amazing people on and it's coming to fruition the things that they talk about this is sort of goes back to the original concept of podcast we've got to put people out there that are doing great work so students and young people in their career can find some role models and some inspiration Mm -hmm. and take something and run with it as well right yeah you know it's all like barry who's taken tripped up into a career and then run with it like crazy and develop this whole thing. When you look back on something like that, there's some accomplishment there just to be proud of, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's really, I think, yeah, how do you define a great career? You look back and there's been some accomplishment. There's been some change. You've affected something, right? You've not just been drifting along. So someone like Barry can actually say that, right? You'd be able to point and go, yeah, that was something we did there. So that's- yeah, my dad, who was a chartered accountant and yeah specialized in rescuing businesses. He used to sit around the dining room table and he would talk and we would all listen. And he would say, you know, the people that are out there making a difference, they're making a change. Those are the people that you need to follow and pay attention to. He said, us accountants and lawyers, we're just parasites on the system. <laughs> oh, in the UK, they're called overheads. Oh, the overheads. Over, <laughs> an overhead item. He said, but the people that are, you know, not overhead... But they're the ones that are out there, and we've been really fortunate. To yeah, no, so some of the people that we've, are uh, we've got to know through this podcast have been amazing, actually. Uh, Peter yeah. Simmons, right? He's my, if I start again, I want that guy's career. I want to be that clever, <laughs> that stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> and well, that's the thing about a lot of these people is that they've they've held steadfast. They've been true to their own personal characteristics. Like they haven't succumbed to other people it's just like no we believe in our vision and we're gonna nurture it and yeah. grow it and to hell with everybody that's like when barry said he's some you're not smart enough well that's you yeah exactly yeah <laughs> you know all of them basically <laughs> yeah. yeah i'll show you i'll show you right okay anyways man. that's all happening because you're a brainchild adam these are the footprints in the snow we're going to leave, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll never forget that meeting in the restaurant. You laid that on me. That's yeah. a brilliant idea. I tracked you down like crazy <laughs> ex-girlfriend. <laughs> Glad you did, you know, because it's just been a huge, huge bunch of fun. And we'll keep doing it as long as it's fun. And people keep wanting to share their story. So, I mean, every time I think, you know, are there any more interesting people left? And it turns out, yeah, there are. There's loads of them. It's really like Barry, right? So all our, all our listeners, this is probably a great way to sort of segue into the end of the today's episode is that we are still looking and we'll always look for those guests that are changing the world, adjacent yep. thinkers. We've had so many good ones on. You know, we're looking for the rebels, those that when someone said you can't do that, well, they went on and proved that they could. <laughs> it's like it ain't good enough. Barry's done that. It ain't good enough. Let's yeah. change it, right? Absolutely. The person you want. 
Absolutely, yeah. Be that person is my advice to you if you're in your own in your career. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, mate. I'll see you on the All right. All right. Cheers, man. Yeah. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.